0: Okay. Well, so this is a short course on lunar volatiles, as I hope you all know, Uh, and basically this is part of a a larger study on uh, new approaches to lunar ice detection and mapping, and so there's two main aspects to this. One is the sort of scientific background, why are we interested in in volatiles like water on on the moon and and, uh, uh, whether or not they can be found as in the form of ices at the poles, then there's also an exploration aspect in terms of um, the types of missions that we might design now and in the future to explore for volatiles on the moon and potentially utilize them as a, a resource. Um, so today's short course is, is divided up into a few different sections and I think the first, the first part of it is sort of a, uh, a little bit of background on, on the science and, and uh, the the basic principles of of how volatiles get trapped on the lunar surface and other airless bodies. Um, And you'll see that temperature is is a fundamental aspect of this. And so our first two talks before the break are going to be given by my two co-leads, Andy Ingersoll and Dave Page. And uh, Andy is going to lead off with uh, a talk on volatiles on airless bodies.
1: Well, I'm going to do what professors often do, which is to talk about something they don't really fully know anything about. Uh, But there's advantages to that. Um, You get to uh, sort of approach each facet of your subject with equal ignorance. Uh, You're not biased towards anything. And um, also, it's kind of fun to review a field. I've written maybe one paper, uh, which I'm going to actually talk about in about a minute. Uh, Not in a minute, but for a minute. And it's only worth about that much. Uh, um, But uh, I am going to try and cover that subject up there. And I decided to make my outline in matrix form. You think of a talk as being sort of a linear thing. Um, But just for fun, uh, I decided to produce a matrix. And uh, I produced the matrix first. And then I started uh, filling it up with slides and uh, material later. And I realized that um, life is not as simple as this matrix. I thought I, I would do the following. I'd say, okay, whoa. Uh, let's go down this column, which is the subject of uh, volatiles uh, delivered by comets and asteroids and uh, what kind of volatiles are deliver, delivered. Uh, if we could uh, uh, sample the ices at the poles, uh, we would be learning about composition of comets and asteroids and maybe their uh, rate of impact. Uh, uh, what good would they provide? Well, maybe this would provide life support uh, or power and propulsion. So the matrix sort of breaks down here because resources cut across all of the three sources. Uh, the moon's interior is a source of volatiles, and the solar wind is too. But let's keep going down my naive uh, uh, organization down this column. Uh, When a comet or asteroid hits the moon, it doesn't necessarily land in one of these cold traps, so you've got to get the volatiles there, and there's a a gauntlet that the volatiles have to run, and I was going to talk about that as if it was a separate subject. (coughs) And uh, competing with the volatiles uh, trying to get to the cold traps, or not trying to, but randomly getting there, uh, the gauntlet is, The solar UV is going to ionize them or dissociate the molecules. Uh, Once they're there, they can sublime and sputter. So I was going to talk about that separately, and then talk about uh, water from the moon's interior, which seems to be hydrated minerals uh, uh, that get outgassed. uh, And, uh, well, this is sort of an anomalous uh, in my matrix structure, but uh, The basic physics is uh, what's the the moon doing with uh, water anyway if it formed from a very, very hot impact? Um, And then, uh, unscrambling, uh, what we might find, we have to decide how much of the uh, water and the minerals of the moon on the surface of the moon is actually Due to endogenic uh, sources, or what fraction is maybe from somewhere else, uh, exterior, um, and finally, uh, the solar wind—protons hydri- uh, hitting the oxygen in the soil—are going to make water. And uh, if we could somehow sort out the contribution of uh, of uh, the solar-derived volatiles <laughs> over time. We could learn about solar activity versus time, possibly cosmic rays. Um, and, uh, but that record, dating back to when the sun was maybe a different kind of producer of, uh, of stuff, uh, has to compete with the degradation of the record uh, And maybe it's preserved by burial. Who knows? So that's my matrix. It's going to turn out that it was a naive concept to think that I could go down each column separately because they're all mixed up together. So um, you could probably start this earlier than Watson, Murray, and Brown. But um, a lot of people started there. And... uh, this is Caltech, so the, and these were Caltech authors. Uh, before there was a planetary science department, there were a few planetary scientists, and uh, Watson, Murray, and Brown wrote this uh, paper. Um, basically, uh, focusing on the sublimation rate of a uh, frost exposed on the surface. This is the vapor pressure of that frost. This is its temperature, this is the gas constant, That's the molecular weight, and uh, the the important thing is that the rate of sublimation into vacuum is proportional to the vapor pressure, and the vapor pressure is an incredibly steep function of temperature, as we all know, so this is 1 over T, and this is the log of the evaporation rate in uh, centimeters squared of water for this curve, Per centimeter, I'm sorry. Per, it's the number of molecules per centimeter squared per second, and here's 10 to the minus 20 in those units. And uh, just for your information, uh, the age of the solar system is uh, 1.44 times 10 to the 17. So, uh, if your temperature is So cold that you're on this part of the water curve, uh, you're gonna be losing a lot less, uh, I'm sorry. This is grams per centimeter squared per second. You're gonna be losing a lot less in the age of the solar system, you're gonna be losing a lot less than a gram per centimeter squared. So that's a millimeter, fraction of a millimeter. Uh, uh, And uh, so Watson, Murray, and Brown really focused on the sublimation. This formula actually appears uh, in uh, James Jean's Dynamical Theory of Gases, 1904. Um, Let me just say, um, since I am ignorant about every slide that's going to be up here, uh, I want you to interrupt and I'm going to ask for help at certain points. I'm going to reach a point where I'm going to say, well, what did the experts say? And I'm going to say, well, you're the experts. And so, so I'm going to do that. Um, um, it turns out that um, they should have worried about other processes besides sublimation, in, or in addition to sublimation. Um, uh, there are many ways that uh, a molecule can get lost in transit to a cold trap or while it's in a cold trap. Uh, um, micrometeorites can uh, are energetic enough to sputter molecules off. Uh, uh, high energy photons can sputter them off. And, uh, well that's, probably enough for right now, okay. Now, um, I'll start off sort of moving historically. This is uh, uh, also uh, a Caltech JPL group, Slade, Butler, and Mulliman, uh, used Goldstone as a transmitter of, uh, I think this is three centimeter radar waves, Uh, circularly polarized and they used the very large array as a receiver somehow synced up uh, and they got these images of mercury. Now, this will be your first quiz question. What's the really interesting thing about this picture? You got it right there and right there. That is the interesting thing um, and so what happens is they send this circularly polarized light out there and if this was an ordinary type reflection it would reverse its direction but the spinning of the, if, if as viewed by the transmitter it would still be a clockwise spin as it came back to the uh, transmitter that would be what a, specular reflector would do. But uh, if it takes a tortuous path through the medium, it can come back, uh, the word is depolarized, uh, with both senses of circular polarization. And actually, the uh, reverse sense came back a little stronger, but only from this uh, region. If they had shown the uh, the, uh the specular reflection, you, you would have been blinded by the spot right in the center, but uh, looking at the unexpected polarization, it brings out uh, scattering media, where and the, the key is multiple scattering inside the medium and a, a several scattering events inside the medium. So it's got to be a, a fairly transparent medium, and uh, Water ice is the only substance at that time that they knew that did this. Uh, other ices do it to a lesser extent. And so that, they wrote a paper published in Science entitled something or other Water uh, evidence of water ice on Mercury at the Poles of Mercury. Um, then along came, so that was 92. And, uh, Dave Page wrote a paper in 92, I wrote a paper in 92. Uh, And the question is, what kind of craters are going to be the coldest? Um, Well, if you think that a nice deep crater is going to be the coldest, you might be wrong actually it's more likely to be the flat craters whose depth to diameter ratio is small provided they are just barely deep enough to have sh- permanently shadowed places on them and the reason is that the uh uh if you have a, a larger depth to diameter ratio uh the the walls keep each other warm but if you're uh, very open, as long as you have a uh, shadowed region, then uh, that shadowed region, that permanently shadowed region, will be colder. And that's shown here. Um, I, I apologize for the fuzziness, but uh, this is such an old paper that uh, I, I couldn't get on to the, from my home last night, I couldn't get on to the uh, proper, clear archive. So here's a depth to diameter ratio. This is latitude on Mercury, 76 to 90. And this is depth diameter rate, and these are temperatures along here. And so these are depth to diameter ratio of one to five, and here's one to 16, and here's one to 40. And these strange uh, lines like this, so let's just think of the one to 40. That's a very low relief crater. It's got a depth to diameter of one to 40. And uh, if you're at whatever this latitude is, um, below that latitude, uh, there are no permanently shadowed places at all in that very flat crater. Now, if your depth to diameter is one to 16, you can have permanently shadowed craters down to this latitude, and then it shoots up to a very warm surface uh, after that. But in this region, real close to the pole, very flat craters, you can get really low temperatures, 50 Kelvin or even below. Uh, This is sort of an arbitrary cutoff uh, at 112 Kelvin, but it corresponds to an evaporation rate using that formula from Watson et al. of 1 meter per billion years. which presumably is a pretty low evaporation rate. But y- you could decide on any other uh, limit that you want. That it's not an absolute cutoff. It's proportional, the vapor pressure of the, of the fluid. Um, now, my little contribution uh, was uh, to do the math for a spherical bowl-shaped crater where you can get an exact answer for the temperature of any permanently shadowed uh, placed in, in the spherical bowl-shaped crater. And this is, and you can get an exact answer, uh, but this is not the formula. It's a little too long to put on this slide. This is in the limit of a, of a, a very small depth to diameter ratio. Little d is depth, big d is diameter. And uh, it, I show this formula just to show you that Uh, the temperature goes down as the depth-to-diameter ratio squared goes down. And uh, uh, that's pretty much borne out by this more detailed calculation that Dave Page did for more realistic crater shapes. Okay, we're still... Now, um, next... Person who came along also in the 1990s was uh, Brian Butler said, well uh, let's ask um, how many molecules if if, uh, if you release a molecule at an arbitrary point on the surface, how many molecules will make it to the coal traps? What fraction of them uh, and uh, he said, "Well, what's uh, what's hindering them? And it's mainly uh, photodissociation and photoionization, <clears throat> and uh, that is a parameter of his model. Uh, and uh, it, that means to be a tau, but it got turned into a t. So, uh, with a little bit of." Uh, Study, he decided to choose these three values for the lifetime of a molecule in empty space at the orbit of Mercury 3.3 times 10 to the 4 seconds, 6.7 and 13. So a day is somewhere in here. Uh, and so that's the molecule has to get to a safe place in a day or even less uh, uh, before it gets photoionized or photodissociated. Now photoionization is probably going to be the end of it because uh, it'll get swept away by the solar wind. Photodissociation, maybe, maybe not. Um, It could, it has a chance of recombining. Even ions have a chance, the the OH ion has a chance of recombining. But he just put a parameter in here, which is that lifetime. And then he, uh, did a random walk. Just released molecules, huge numbers, hundreds of thousands of molecules, and uh, let them hop around on the surface. Each hop uh, leaves the surface with a Maxwell-Boltzmann velocity distribution. uh, And uh, I think he assumed no uh, bouncing, that that they re-thermalized each time and the left is, each time they hit the surface, they start off with a new, totally random Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution. Uh, There's a small amount of loss due to escape, uh, gravitational escape the planet, but mostly it's, it's photo-associated ionization. Okay, uh, and uh, the particles were spread uniformly across the surface, and he just let it rip. And uh, here's the f- percentages that make it into the coal traps. With a shorter lifetime, uh, fewer molecules make it. Longer lifetime, they stand a better chance of hopping around and uh, making it to the coal traps. Um, now, this is from his paper, and I really had a lot of trouble understanding this this figure, uh, so I generated my own uh, this is a this is his brian's um, caption um, this is the contribution of each latitude in one degree bars to uh, the eventual um, Uh, uh, buildup of molecules in the cold trap. And you say, wait a minute. Why should 89 degrees contribute less molecules than the equator? They should have a much better chance of reaching a cold trap at 89 or 90 degrees than these guys. And so I struggled with that. And then I said, wait a minute, it's because there is just less, uh, since they're uniformly spread over the surface, there's, there's less territory between 88 and 89 degrees than there is between one and two degrees. And so I uh, uh, said, I'll take that into account and that generates this curve, which is the probability of a single molecule starting at various latitudes, uh, reaching the cold trap as a function of its starting latitude, and this is a much, to me, you don't have to like this. But to me, this is a more intuitive uh, curve. Uh, If you start out really close to the cold traps, you're much more likely to make it to a cold trap than if you start out at the equator. But um, nonetheless, um, despite this gauntlet that the particles have to run, um, they do make it from the equator as well as from the pole. All right, um, yeah? does that take into account the temperature of the equator? Yes, uh, Butler has a diurnal cycle, and uh, temperature versus latitude, and all sorts of good stuff. Now, uh, then along came Julie Moses, uh, and She accepted um, Brian Butler's uh, fractions, those percentages that make it to a safe landing. uh, And then she said, um, what kind of impactors uh, are likely to be the big contributors to the cold traps? And uh, she didn't consider all impactors well, she considered uh, Jupiter-family comets; those are in red. Uh, Halley-type comets in blue, and asteroids in green. And uh, these are long, very logarithmic scales here. So this is the mass of the object, and this is uh, the or this, this is another sort of Monte Carlo thing. Since we don't know all the orbits of the Halley-type comets, or all the orbits of the Jupiter family comets, you have to do some kind of statistics about their initial orbits and uh, uh, how many of them are out there, and how many asteroids are going to come in and strike the moon, or Mercury in this case, I'm sorry. Uh, and. Uh, these stars, I, I don't fully understand what these stars are, but uh, they are the biggest, the biggest contributors. These are powers of 10, one notch here is a power of 10, and these are the biggest contributors. And uh, the bottom line, which I do understand, uh, because it's in words, not this figure, is uh, that the biggest objects are contributing more mass than all the gazillion little objects. So the big objects are, uh, even though they're not as many, they make up for it. Uh, And uh, those are statistically the most uncertain because they involve big asteroids and big comets coming in. Um, And also, naturally, the big objects have a lower collision probability, uh, but there they are, contributing the most mass. Um, And here are some numbers from uh, Moses. uh, There's no at all from Moses' paper. Um, Asteroids, quite a spread. um, Because uh, the statistics are bad when you're talking about a small number of big objects. um, And uh, whose orbits we don't know in advance. Um, but something times 10 to the 17 grams over three and a half billion years. That's a quote from her paper. Jupiter, uh, well, both kinds of comets, similar number, except the spread is even bigger. Something times 10 to the 17, even maybe 10 to the 18 grams over three and a half billion years. Then, uh, this was not really a topic of her paper, but, uh, independent other estimates of uh, micrometeorites, which are uh, interplanetary dust particles, similar number. And uh, at the time of this um, paper, there were at least the um, radar observations, uh, Slade et al., who had estimates of the uh, amount of volatiles that were actually there, and it was comparable to these numbers. So, uh, Obviously, this is a hard thing to do because uh, you have a little dot and you have to decide how much water is there. Uh, The idea, yeah, uh, really big objects will produce an atmosphere on, on Mercury and then the molecules will start pushing each other out rather than uh, just uh, individuals hopping out. Uh, I, I didn't see anything, uh, any discussion like that in the paper. So uh, I don't know how big an effect it is. Um, now, uh, so this kind of hangs together as theoretical uh, efforts often do. They often match the observations uh, maybe sometimes having done theory for the wrong reasons, I, I would agree, um, but uh, it's, it's good that you can at least get in the right order of magnitude on the amount of volatiles at the Mercury pole. Now, I'm gonna tell you, and you probably already know, that the poles of the Moon are likely to have 100 times less volatiles than Mercury, and that's still a mystery. So we'll get to that. And that's where I'm going to ask for help. Tell me, solve the mystery. Okay, so let's switch over to the moon. Uh, This is from Feldman et al. And I can't remember what the name of the spacecraft was Lunar Prospector. prospector. Uh, Epithermal neutrons. sample deeper, maybe down to a meter, of regolith. They're more penetrating than the uh, fast neutrons. And I'll show you fast neutrons in a minute. But it's just absolutely clear that something's going on at the poles. Uh, This outer circle is 45 degrees latitude and this one is minus 45 degrees uh, and these are some kind of projections on the poles so uh, purple indicates uh, more absorption going on of these epithermal neutrons than than you would get from mere soil and uh, uh, it's the hydrogen atoms that are doing the absorption, so uh, purple means hydrogen atoms. Uh, So it's just that you you see less, you get a lower signal when you have the hydrogen because they're absorbing the neutrons. Um, Now the um, fast neutrons uh, don't show that same kind of signal. So here's a different way to look at it, also from Feldman. Here's uh, latitude, starting at zero degrees latitude, there is the equator, these are the uh, epithermal neutrons again, going up to the pole, there's 90 degrees, going over the pole on the other side, and here's 270 degrees, which is the same as the other pole, and you can see the uh, absorption of the neutrons by, at the poles here and here of the epithermal neutrons, and uh, sort of a, background continuum where there are apparently not much or no uh, hydrogen. I think it's no hydrogen. Now here's the fast neutrons, uh, which as I said, a sample uh, not as deep. And uh, you, the poles really don't stand out in this figure. Uh, the conclusion uh, is that uh, it's a mixture of soil and ice, and in fact, the uh, it's the the their best estimate, sort of combining these two data sets, is that these polar deposits that have ice in them. Clearly, they have some ice in them. They have some hydrogen in them, and the hydrogen means uh, at least hydrated minerals, or probably ice. But that ice cannot be pure, uh, at least in the top meter of the surface, it can't be pure. Uh, It can only be of order one or two percent relative to everything else, which is soil. And if there is pure water ice, it's gotta be below the level where the epithermal nutrients are sensitive, which is one meter below the surface or deeper. And this is where that estimate of two times 10 to the 15 grams in the total reservoir at the poles comes from. Uh, And that is this number here, which is uh, two orders of magnitude less than mercury. And that's weird. Uh, Mercury has an obliquity, uh, remember, uh, relative to its orbit, its spin axis is just about 90 degrees. So uh, uh, it's that zero obliquity is uh, 90 or zero. Let's call it zero obliquity. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Zero obliquity is favorable for having permanently shadowed craters. But um, the moon is only, I don't know, one and a half degree obliquity. And uh, really, they should. have comparable numbers of uh, craters. Uh, It's not clear that Mercury gets more bombarded than the moon or less bombarded. Uh, It probably gets more solar wind. But uh, asteroids and comets, who knows? So this is a mystery. I'd love to hear the solution to that mystery. OK, let's move on here. what are these lunar, lunar, not mercury, what are these lunar deposits made of? Uh, well, lacking a instrumented rover with a, uh, or a sample return mission, you uh, throw a big uh, inert thing at one of these deposits and see what comes off and you detect it Spectroscopically, this is microns from 1.3 to 2.3. And um, you get these spectra. So here's the model. Well, the the data are there, and there is the model fit. And these are various gases. And uh, I must say, I'm impressed that they can pull out some of these numbers. with all this kind of stuff. But here are the numbers. Water, it's the main constituent, but there's uh, several percent of a lot of other things. CO2, uh, H2S, um, whatever that is, methanol. What is that, methanol, Uh, and some organics. I I hope in this, Short course, or in our studies later, um, someone's going to tell us what uh, what it all means. Uh, this mixture of stuff uh, is this what a comet or a spent comet looks like, or a carbonaceous chondrite meteorite, or uh, what are what do these uh, mixtures of Molecules, what are they telling us about the sources? Or perhaps about the sources and their uh, rate of destruction. Now, obviously, uh, with these spectra, you're not going to detect noble gases. But uh, as we're going to learn, there are places on the moon where it's cold enough for organites to sit there. For a long time, Uh, so uh, if we knew what these compositions of these lunar ices were, would we? What would we know if we knew the composition, beyond just tabulating it? What would we say? Ah, the solar system works like this and not like that speaking of hydrated minerals um, thank you um, there's there was a long uh, standing assumption based on early analysis of lunar samples that the moon was totally dry and um, that didn't inexorably point to a very hot formation scenario for the moon, but it helped that idea along, I would say. This is my reading of the literature over the weekend. Uh, That um, if you had a giant, uh, well, a Mars side object colliding with the Earth, um, you would have magma particles or even rock vapor sprayed out into low Earth orbit, and some of that stuff, well, all of that stuff would be so hot that it would lose its volatiles, and some of that stuff would uh, re-accrete in orbit and escape, be- I mean, and, and go into orbit rather than falling back to Earth, and that stuff that remained in orbit, uh, having been devolatized by its high temperature, became the Moon, and so, uh, The uh, failure to detect, well, water or OH um, in the lunar samples uh, was a uh, sort of confirmation of that idea. Uh, Contamination, yes, that's right. Um, And here's really an answer to the, uh, contamination question. Um, these are glass beads, and this is distance in microns from the center of the bead. So this is the center of the bead. There's the surface of the bead. And uh, with the kind of instruments that are available in 2008, Sol et al., um, they were able to sort out where the volatiles are. Here's chlorines, sulfur, and water uh, here, and uh, there was more of these volatiles near the center of the beads uh, than at at the surface of the beads and that's opposite to what you'd get if it was terrestrial contamination. If it was terrestrial contamination, it would be uh, the other way around. The surface would be contaminated, the center of the bead would be more pristine, and so this was this was a big deal. Uh, uh, I, I, just from the number of papers that uh, quote this solid paper, solid all paper, uh, it's clearly this changed a lot of people's thinking uh, about lunar hydroxyl or lunar water. All right. Um, then people started looking at. Um, different minerals, Uh, and I don't quite know why apatite is a special thing. It's sort of a calcium phosphate with its (laughs) crystal structure has usually fluoride or fluorine, but that fluorine can be replaced by chlorine or OH. (laughs) And uh, this is uh, some of the results from Greenwood at all, although I pulled the figure out of a, a review part, uh, I like this review article by Basilevsky, by the way, I recommend it. Uh, I'm not giving you the reference, so you'll have to figure that out, um, but uh, this appetite, which, well, the only thing I do understand about appetite is that it's a uh, sort of an end member of magmatic differentiation. So as a magma cools, uh, a lot of other stuff crystallizes out and the last little drop of magma, or maybe not the last drop, but right at the end is when the a- appetite comes out. So it's, it's a concentrator of volatiles uh, as a magma cools and crystallizes. <clears throat> so here's what you get. You get really uh, close to a percent weight percent of water in this appetite. Uh, That's a lot. And if if the general lunar basalts had had that kind of weight percent water, no one would have claimed uh, terrestrial contamination. Um, But here's the deuterium to hydrogen ratio in units of delta D. So uh, zero is, uh, Standard mean ocean water. And this is parts per thousand. And uh, mid ocean ridge basalts are range sort of from zero to minus 100, which would be uh, minus 100 parts per thousand and be like what, 10% or something. Um, so they range in this narrow range. And these lunar apatites are way up and down. And uh, again, I appeal to you experts. I don't think that's been solved, why there's such a huge range of uh, deuterium to hydrogen ratio in these lunar appetites. Remember when I showed you my second slide with that matrix outline? I, that was kind of my summary for this whole subject. Uh, even, not at all, not at all, thank you. Uh, that. Uh, all of these sources are hard to separate when you have them all piled up in one cold crater. And uh, if we knew everything we wanted to know about that crater, every composition, uh, even layering, it, we might not know what we really want to know. It's, it's, a, it's a tough subject, this thing. Even if you take the measurements, Uh, How do you interpret them in terms of the history of the solar system or whatever? Um, One more slide on volatiles in the crust of the moon. These are melt inclusions. Now, I'm not a petrologist either, but a melt inclusion seems to be... um, You have a crystal, uh, which is the outer matrix or the mantle, but inside there, there's a, I guess it's a glassy little uh, thing that never segregated, never, it it was there before it got this crystal forming around it. So it's a a rare beast, Uh, but it tells you about the composition of the original magma, or it tells you it's closer to an original magma. It doesn't have this uh, differentiation that goes on when you crystallize a magma uh, slowly, piece by piece, and wind up with appetite at the end. This is a much more better sample, uh, even though these are very small things, uh, of what the original melt was. So, uh, here you have water parts per million, And these are these circles with, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, this is water versus fluorine and water versus sulfur and water versus chlorine. Uh, These are, uh, well, parts per million. These are uh, the original melt getting up to uh, uh, 0.1%, I guess in counting, not in mass. But nonetheless, these are, uh, this is, pretty wet for the moon. Uh, And uh, at least Howry say that, well, this implies that the volatiles were not entirely lost during this lunar forming giant impact. Uh, Or else maybe right after the impact, there was uh, exchange of volatiles between the Earth's atmosphere and the stuff that eventually became the moon. Uh, But it does, having lunar magma uh, with these kinds of uh, uh, water abundance or volatile abundance uh, does change the nature of our interpretation of the lunar forming giant impact. Uh, By the way, these circles here without the black rims are the uh, matrix in which these inclusions are embedded and they are dry. Okay, now, uh, yeah, I've got a few more here. Mm. Um, Another kind of water on the moon, it's everywhere. And uh, this too had been, uh, this is spectroscopic evidence. This is uh, um, three microns right here, uh, wavelength, and this is 2.8, and these little dips, Uh, which are a function of latitude, I'll mention that. Um, This is from Carly Peters. Uh, um, These, I guess, had been uh, brushed aside as contamination of some sort, and you needed a lunar orbiter with a spectrometer, a near-infrared spectrometer, to really believe them. Uh, If you look at lunar samples in these spectra, you you of course can brush it away as terrestrial contamination. But now we're looking from an orbiter uh, at the moon itself. And uh, the interesting thing about these water absorption features is that they're a function of latitude. So uh, the higher latitude, the deeper the absorption feature. And uh, if you're at the equator, there is no absorption feature. So, uh, but there is absorptions at all latitudes, right? Uh, right, here's the 18 degree latitude line. So this is stuff that's everywhere, even though it's a little bit more dense at the poles. And that's not all. It's a function of Daylight, so uh, it's, it's it's an inverse function of daytime. Uh, these uh, this is a good figure if you can read it. Um, the, the this is the depth of the. Uh, this is again this is a different uh, instrument on a different spacecraft, uh, and Sunshine is the author. Um, and it's just coincidence that she uh, discovered this uh, effect of sunshine. (laughs) But uh, down means a deeper absorption in the three micron band, which means down is more water. And so let's see if we can read this. Uh, Here's the morning. Uh, Here's noon. So that's less water, because down is more water, deeper absorption. And then uh, afternoon, it begins to, uh, water <laughs> begins to reappear, and then you come back to uh, evening, and the water has uh, reappeared. So it's a... There's
0: a controversy about that. Mm.
1: Okay, three microns, you're normally, you, you think you're looking at uh, reflected sunlight, but there is at three microns a component uh, due to thermal emission, yes. Okay, good to know. Yeah, just the bacteria, you know. yeah, no. Yeah, these are not, yeah, I mean, you've got a lot of, These are not such deep absorptions, 0.9 to 1. Um, Okay, um, now I couldn't find quantitative estimates. Julie Moses did a, and other people have done quantitative estimates of the delivery of volatiles and uh, coupled with Brian Butler's um, running the gauntlet percentages uh, for uh, so they've done quantitative estimates of how much volatiles uh, are coming from asteroids and comets and interplanetary dust particles. I couldn't find any comparable numbers for the two other possible sources. Um, uh, the solar wind, which is obviously capable of making water. When a hydrogen uh, atom hits, the water, uh, hits um, an oxygen atom, you can make water even if the hydrogen is charged, and you can still make water. So I couldn't find any quantitative estimate for the solar wind, and I couldn't find any quantitative estimates of the uh, contribution from the uh, endogenic lunar water in the soils to what might wind up in the cold traps. Uh, And I didn't dare do the second one, but I did do... A totally, back of the envelope, uncertain by three orders of magnitude calculation for the solar wind. I went to the Wikipedia. We got, we got what was a for football. Well, I didn't use those units. <laughs> I did go to the Wikipedia to say, what is the solar wind flux? And they say, well, it's variable because you have an active sun in it. So I took some Wikipedia number of three times, 10 to the eighth centimeter per centimeter squared per second. Or the particle flux in the solar wind at the moon. And uh, I said, well, let's just assume 100% efficiency so that every particle in this solar wind uh, that strikes the moon, take the moon's cross-sectional area, uh, no, every two particles, because it's H2O, uh, it makes one water. How much mass? Huge amount. It's 100 times the asteroid plus comets, and that's, uh, and it's 10,000 times the observed polar ice in the moon. This is Julie Moses' number, which has huge error bars, but not two orders of magnitude. And this is the um, Feldman et al. number of what's observed. And uh, so... If you had 100% efficiency, uh, which is highly unlikely, you'd have a big contribution from the solar wind. And I, uh, yes, um, this stuff is going to be produced right on the surface. It's going to be very vulnerable. Uh, to, and and the, if the sunshine daylight effect is true, then uh, it doesn't last long at all. The sun comes up, it heats it, and it disappears, or it goes somewhere. Well, and maybe it'll hop around until it reaches the sun. But now, um, I know nothing about this subject, but uh, it's the ISRU people, in situ resource utilization. Um, and there is a paper I read by Sanders and Morrison, and I pulled a figure from their uh, paper about what resources, what would you do with them if you had some lunar volatiles? Well. Uh, I think one of the things you'd do is you'd uh, separate the water into hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, you'd have uh, a rocket fuel. Uh, the water, if you could purify it from uh, all those, uh, you know, methanol and so on, you could uh, drink it. Uh, the hydrogen you could uh, breathe. I'm sorry, the oxygen you could breathe. Uh, it makes propulsion, uh, and then with uh, a real power source, you could do mining, you could build structures, you could build your spacecraft and not have to lift it off the surface of the Earth. Uh, I'll let someone else worry about that. And uh, this is my final slide, uh, and my only point is the point I already made. Uh, all of these processes are mixed together in these lunar Kohler polar traps, cold traps, and it's going to be very hard to unscramble them. That's it.